0: Hello, you're listening to Under the Skin from Luminary with me, Russell Brand. This week I spoke with Conan O'Brien. Conan O'Brien is a comedian, writer, podcaster and producer and the longest working of all current US late night talk show hosts with 26 years on our screens, which he... Doesn't like to have celebrated because he thinks it's like a prize for longevity or for, as he said, for staying at the party too long. He is currently hosting his show Conan on TBS, shot entirely on phones and Zoom calls from his home. His podcast Conan O'Brien Needs Friends is available on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, wherever you get podcasts. Well, we had a really good chat um, on it, both on his podcast Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend and it's on my podcast Under the Skin. On it, we talked about the first time we met, and he described very beautifully seeing me backstage on his talk show and how I was pacing, and I believe he said, like a lion. And if you're going to pace, pace like a goddamn predatory big cat. He then talked about childhood. That was a bloody good bit. We talked about both finding our sort of gin and purpose through comedy. I did talk about the sex industry in Bangkok, as you would imagine. I didn't really intend to do that. I think I was talking about the nature of approval and that that set up a running joke that, that, along with a beautiful reference to synthetic saliva and broth, in a sense, stitched the whole show together. Uh, Before we get into the episode with Conan, who actually, uh, you know, I'm going to say is my friend. I'm going to say that. Let's have some comments from from the Ricky Gervais episode, which was bloody brilliant, wasn't it? Did you enjoy listening to Ricky? How can you not? He's so wonderful. Listen to some of these things. Kai Anders, Ricky don't know this, but he's actually a Buddhist. Well, we shall have to tell him, Kai. We shall tell Ricky that he's a Buddhist. That is probably the best way of being a Buddhist is to not even know that you are one, because that's you've really transcended labels at that point. You didn't even know the label was there. You've ignored it's like a, it's like it's stuck to the sole of your shoe. Then there's a uh, this person's name I can't say because it's in a language I don't speak. I feel like it's Korean. Are these two? Are these the two cuddliest comedian turned life philosophers you've ever seen? If you're asking me that, I would say that they are. And yes, yes they are. In a way, you've got to be a bit of a philosopher to be a comedian because it's a perspective, it's a worldview, isn't it? Glocked. Some of the things Ricky said were particularly poignant, in no particular order. One, trying to see the good in bad people. Two, discussing things society said, says we shouldn't discuss. Three, opposing dogmatic religion and dogma, but not spirituality or personal religion. Four, rooting the meaning of life and leaving behind a better planet and not hurting people. Five, being non-judgmental. Let a thousand men go free rather than one innocent men, man jailed. Yeah. Six, noting that identity politics is a new form of religion and zealotry. Seven, noting that when a cat wants to sit on your lap, it, it's a privilege. Eight, keeping authentic to his class but of joking about his newfound wealth and punching down in an ironic way. That's a nice list. Anyone else that wants to send a list, send a list. Who doesn't like a list? Everyone likes a list, don't they? ty diab seeing russell blush is amazing i never thought i'd see that well i don't know when that was but jenny says it was uh, ricky gervais gave me a compliment and even thinking about anyone give me a compliment hey have you signed up to my mailing list yet go on my website sign up to the mailing list if you haven't and follow me on social media i can put a youtube channel russell brand i've got a instagram account russell brand i've got accounts on all of the social media things they're all called russell Brand except twitter which is called rusty rockets Basically, the content's the same, isn't it? On all of them, really? You just follow one of them or none of them. No, follow all of them. Follow all of them. These metrics mean something in my financial life somewhere down the line, potentially. So let's have a listen now to another great comedy mind, Conan O'Brien. Hello. Hi. My name is Russell Brand, and I feel nervous about being Conan O'Brien's friend.
1: Now, why would you say that, Russell? Why would you be nervous at all? We've yeah. known each other a little bit over the years. We've always been very chummy, and I like the word chum, so I try to use it as much as possible. Uh, what's, what are you nervous about?
0: Friendship in, in, in general. Like, what, what, if, when was the last time you acquired an actual friend? Oh, well, I don't know
1: that I have one.
0: Mm. You I mean, see? This is,
1: this is really, yeah. This is I have lots of people I say, hello, how are you? And on my birthday, mm. they say, thinking of you. But real friend, huh?
0: I'll wager it's been close to a decade since you've spoken to someone who's not in your pay.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. <laughs> you know why people are laughing so hard? Because... <laughs> That has the, uh, that's an ice dagger of truth. <laughs> that's what that is right there. That went right through my heart. Um, I do have, I have to say, I, I did have this thought, Russell, and you have an incredible uh, ability to get right to the heart of the matter. I had a party, like a Christmas party, and I looked around and the room was full. And at one point I realized everyone in this room that I can see right now works for me. Yeah. Now there were other people there, who are friends, but I do. Yes, I do uh, pay people like Sona. Would you be my friend if I weren't paying your mortgage?
0: No, I would not. Do you no, want to I'm think of, Would you like to no. think
1: about it more? Um, you know, you're a lot. You can be a lot. Uh, but I would. You know what? I don't want to say a jokey thing. I would actually be your friend because you're. You're cool. You're okay. kind of cool. Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. Well, that was uh, that just—I don't know—that was uninspiring. You know, <laughs> that wasn't the rousing speech that I, the Churchillian speech I wanted to hear at this moment, Russell. What? What do you think? I—I I have the capacity to be a good friend. I know I do, but it would help if I employed you.
0: Yeah, definitely. I—I I reckon that would certainly. Make me more enthusiastic. You know, enthusiasm means the energy of God, the presence of God in a project. And I reckon if you were to pay me just a stipend, just a stipend, <laughs> not talking about an enormous wage payment, I'm not unrealistic. <laughs> what do I offer? Another narcissist who's slightly different <laughs> in, in ways that are. I- aren't necessarily monetizable. <laughs> I'm not going to increase your audience. I'm not going to do anything for you. I'm not even Andy. What's the point? You're acquiring sidekicks at a rate of knots. Your sidekicks are subdividing. There'll probably be another sidekick on that panel by the end of this fucking conversation. You're right. You're right. I'm sorry, Russell. Please.
1: Please stop yelling at me. It's...
0: Uh, you <laughs> this know, is not a criticism of you. I love you.
1: Well, oh, I, I love you as well, and I mean that. I uh, I've been an admirer of yours for many years, and I will be. I will pay you a stipend. I think that's what we call it. Stipend. You said stipend. How do yeah, you say stipend, it? Stipend.
0: Stipend. And what Just... I'd like you to do is, to for a moment, reflect on what the language you speak is called, and then determine who's <laughs> correct on that basis. I speak.
1: I speak West Los Angeles. <laughs> Queen's English. (laughs) Listen, I'm gonna tell you that I grew up in, uh, this just comes to mind, but I grew up uh, just outside Boston and I grew up uh, visiting my grandparents in Worcester and going to Sturbridge and driving through Cambridge and Needham and Framingham and then later on, as a young lad, I started to read about England. And I honestly thought that you guys took those names from us. I really believed it. And I was, I thought, who the fuck are they to be taking our town? I remember voicing that to someone and them correcting me and me feeling ashamed. But yeah. uh, anyway, I just grew up with that narcissistic American belief that we created everything, it was we who did it. And then you guys copied us and somehow got hold of a time machine.
0: (laughs) I suppose that's the kind of certainty that's required to build an empire. If, like, America had no self-confidence, if America thought, I'm not sure that this is right, how do you, for example, I don't know, fund international wars against your ideological opponents unless there's a sort of certainty that you're right and i'm not suggesting this is unique to american people or the american nation because britain did it for you know a good few centuries as well the the assumption of Correctness correctness of our perspective, which is one of the things that we're seeing now, this sort of fragmenting of the the presumed universal as identity politics is on the rise, rage in politics on the rise, a sense of, well, who are we? What is it to be an American anymore? And why the hell are there so many places called Cambridge?
1: Okay, well, listen, I'm going to say two things, Russell. First, uh, by the way, uh, we are, Russell, I wanted to make this very clear. Russell is, uh, is in England right now. And I am, usually I like to do these, we like to do these, uh, these interviews in the same room, but because of the uh, international pandemic.
0: What? Uh, the,
1: yes, you'll. I'll tell you, <laughs> hang on, I'll tell you more. <laughs> uh, we, are, we are doing this uh, over uh, a Zoom line and I'm watching Russell as he drinks, probably the largest bottle of water I've seen. <laughs> in the last mm, easy 20 years. Uh, and I, uh, but um, I'm gonna say two things, Russell. First, I'm gonna say this, the moment, the moment I sense even the slightest atom of anti-American sentiment, this interview is over. Uh, uh, and Because I won't have that, not on this show. This show is very pro-American, uh, jingoistic, uh, and and second of all, I agree with everything you just said. I think uh, on, a ser- on, a, on a slightly serious note, I think blind certainty has probably driven most of mankind, I'm not saying for the better, but just in a direction. And, mm. and, and I do believe that you cannot, if America in 1800, if most Americans had said, yeah, I don't know, I mean, who are we? To be doing what we're doing, we'd still be huddled along the eastern shoreline. Mm. Uh, but it was the certainty that that we deserved this continent, and that anybody in our way should die, that uh, <laughs> that made everything happen and led to the McDonald's arch. So, I I don't know if that's a good thing. I think it's probably a bad thing. But it's what happened. And, and as you said, uh, you guys you guys uh, did it before us uh, and the French did it, the Romans did it. uh, Everybody did it. It's the imperative. I am certain, I am certain.
0: Yeah, I think that the certainty begins even before the verb in the sentence. It begins with the I. What is this perspective from which we observe things that to which we immediately apply a lens—a lens of preferences. I like this. I dislike that. What is this I? Man, I've been spending a lot of time on my own, Conan. You know. I know. I could. I could tell.
1: I could tell you. You immediately have. Have you immediately have gone to. You know, most people spend, uh, at least on my podcast, at least spend at least the first 15, 20 minutes talking about, uh, you know, what kind of genes they prefer or their diet or something about their career. You, within seconds, went to what is I? <laughs> <laughs> Which I admire. That's, uh, that's something I admire.
0: What is receiving the senses? What What is behind the lens, Conan? I mean, what's happened is, I think, I've like... like... <laughs> I've not required as much therapy because, you know, I'm not going out as much, so I'm not talking to people. If I'm not talking to people, I don't require as much therapy. I don't require as many support groups, but... What's happened is, is, I've drifted into this sort of low-level, lethargic state of constant reflection and dismantling. You know, meditate like through meditate. The only thing that keeps me normal is the fact I've got two young daughters, yeah. and there's there's no room there for any of this existential inquiry. Simply wipe up the urine. That's <laughs> all that's required. <laughs>
1: that happens again later in life, Russell. I'm just telling you. <laughs> Uh, I'm a bit older than you and I'm telling you that there's another phase of (laughs) where where did this urine come from? Uh, But we'll get into that later. You know, I had the experience of, um, a profound experience of when my first child was born. I have two children. They're a bit uh, older than your children. My children are in their mid-60s. But but they, uh, my, my, my daughter, when she was born, my first child, I remembered she was born and I was right there and it helped take the baby out of, of my wife and cut the umbilical cord, uh, much more involved than I wanted to be. Um, I wanted to be watching it all on Skype uh, from a five-star hotel uh, hundreds of miles away. But um, what happened was I received this, this baby and my immediate thought was, oh, I don't matter anymore. And I mm-hmm. thought that in a positive way, like that was the time that I felt this thing lifting of, I mean, clearly I'd been on a journey uh, since, a, since a youth to, I sometimes walk around our offices and it's just filled with fan artwork and giant posters that say Conan and Conan and Conan and Conan and, Conan and the show's called Conan and I'd make all my employees brand Conan under their ass. So I've been driven by this something and then uh, it really did bring me a long way towards, oh, fuck it, I don't matter, is when my, my children were born. That helped a lot.
0: Yeah, it's, um I've, one of the things I'm thinking about a lot at the moment during my mental breakdown is the... Appearance of the sacred in the ordinary, and I suppose what the way that many of us experience that is through the birth of our children, the disruption mm-hmm. of every day. But even this interruption that we're globally experiencing is a, a, a an opportunity to reflect on what we assume is normal. Like now that going to a supermarket, say, has become this bizarre. Uh, has fantaz- fantastical experience. This sort of odd, balkanized trip to the supermarket, two meters apart. It's made me realise supermarkets. Are- are always strange. All of civilization is strange. We're living um, amidst so many strange assumptions. Uh, it's so seldom now in this the fragmenting times that I've already referenced that there is a kind of certainty. The certainty of knowing that you love a child, the the recognition in that moment of, oh yeah, I don't really... I don't really matter. And for that to feel like a positive thing, because I imagine you've grappled with the idea of not mattering quite a lot. I mean, how else? Uh, how, what, dare what else? how dare you, sir? <laughs> no, come how on. Dare how dare you? How
1: dare you, sir? How dare you? How can you be? Oh, surely, uh, oh, no, you must. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish I was wearing a monocle right now so it could fall out. Registering surprise. Uh, yeah, no, I, I... Well, I mean, I, I think we have this in common. I... I don't understand anybody who could possibly be in comedy who didn't have a very anxious uh, and somewhat unsettled childhood. And I know that that's a cliche, but it's a cliche I think because it's true. I spent a lot of my childhood thinking I don't have a personality. Uh, I'm not, I don't think I'm really good at anything. I'm not picked, I'm certainly not picked first, or even in the middle, I'm towards, one of the last people picked when they want to play a sport. Uh, And I think that because I went through that stage, uh, that, I don't know, that was some sort of, some sort of chemical thing began that I had to figure out who I was. And then of course, that started working so furiously at an early age that now I, uh, I live in a, I'm like a Batman villain. I live in a lair and mm. everything, I'm just surrounded by my name in large type. And everybody's working on the Conan project. And you're like, oh Jesus. So this, this, and I think you had a, a little bit of a similar feeling in childhood. You were not always the Russell brand we see.
0: No, I was a right anxious, nervous, ferity little boy. Twi- twitchy little creature um, Would now, you would
1: you gnaw through wiring? Is that something you would do often, is gnaw through wiring? Uh, if
0: I got access to wiring, my incisors were straight in it, otherwise the <laughs> damn things, they, they keep on growing, they keep on burrowing down little ivory little spears <laughs> The amount of calcium I'm going through
1: <laughs> Yeah, so you were an anxious kid
0: yeah very much and i, I was trying to i want to know when you felt that anxiety abate the first time i they, like listen this is pretty telling like i suppose uh, like the first times i felt aligned connected or like i was good at something First was being in a school play and people laughing and thinking, oh, my God, I'm good at something. And then just a few years later, on the streets of Patpong, Thailand, when some uh, sex workers left their post, Conan, to f- pursue me at 16 down the street. And my dad looked approvingly at his son. Really?
1: Let's examine that <laughs> moment. They just they just like the cut of your jib. They saw you walking down the street and they said, well, that's a fine looking young lad.
0: They left their posts. A sex worker must never leave their post, Not on the, in the Pat Pong district. <laughs> the, those posts are hard won. Those pitches. <laughs> but no. They came after me. And I remember feeling terribly fulfilled by the whole experience. Not uh, carnally or even uh, concupiscently. Oh, it, my was, God. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Just fantastic. Thank you, Thank you so much. <laughs> Ah, that's Rubicently. the approval I live for. Uh, like, uh, But just for, for the... I, in fact, I, I would argue that all uh, addictive behaviours or habitual behaviours, and I reckon you're a workaholic, are a, a sort of um, you know personal strategy for dealing with feelings of inadequacy and worthlessness. And it's n- no coincidence that I perhaps went on to act out a lot sexually, you know, I think given that original impulse, not to mention certain obvious other uh, drives, should yes. we call them? Let's just call them yeah. drives scones. Yes,
1: yes, yes. We'll leave that. Uh, no, I, uh, <laughs> I've i never been pursued by sex workers uh, at any age. Uh, and um, I've never had them leave their posts for me. Uh, the sex they workers, stay in their
0: station, do they? Yes, the sex you workers. You go by, they we, remain at their station.
1: The, here's what I think, Russell. I think I'm equally attractive as you. I just think that I encounter... Uh, sex workers that take their profession more seriously and will not leave their post. I think they are just as enraptured by me as those sex workers were by you. But the sex workers that see me, had they, they take their sacred oath more seriously.
0: The Hippocratic oath of sex work of do no wrong and do not leave your post. <laughs> Is, is absolutely vital. These, these sex workers that you've been parading past, I'm troubled. <laughs> they're they're, they're a, a, a higher quality, clearly. And I see us as, yeah, you and I are identical, give or, t- give or take a few drops of pigment.
1: Yes, yes, you have a nice uh, I envy you. You have that, uh, that jet black hair uh, and I, I know that you can tan up very nicely, you have that olive skinned hue. I am uh, uh, a pudding, uh, a white rice pudding that has just started to turn, has just started to go bad.
0: I think you're beautiful and you look like those uh, those when they do like that opera in Japan where they have lovely white faces. You're talking about kabuki. Yes, kabuki. Yes. I'd say that you're sort of Irish kabuki. Celtic yes. Kabuki with Conan. <laughs> yes. Now there's an item. I'm already paying off my stipend. Celtic Kabuki with Conan. Yes. See, this is. And Sona, for God's sake, give it a bit of femininity. Yes. Stipend.
1: You'll get your stipend. You'll get your tuppence. You'll get your. you get your farthing. I'll buy you that goose in the window on Christmas Day. Today, sir, uh, Christmas Day. Uh, I can't help it, and I'm going to hell. Um. But uh, yeah, I think that to, to, I I remember my memories of of people laughing uh, or finding something I did funny are so crystal clear and I've forgotten huge chunks of my life, you know, uh, not because of drug use or anything like that, just because they've just faded out into the background. But I remember clearly being in the schoolyard and I had found a cane and I was doing some bits with it, some shtick, and I crossed one leg over the other, knocking the cane out accidentally, a la Chaplin and fell over and a bunch of kids laughed. That is in 3D high def in my mind and I can't remember my wedding day. So uh, (laughs) this is the sadness of the whole thing. But I remember very clearly thinking, oh, that's the way through, that's how I'll make it.
0: Yeah, and to to our earlier point about certainty, the, this this moment that you're describing, I think, has been characterised as uh, like sometimes as epiphany or connection or meeting the daemon or the spirit or the djinn. just in some moment recognising this is who I am, this is what I'm about. I'm not just um, a featureless Celtic Kabuki fella. I am a, a, a man with purpose and an, and an ability to carry off an admittedly plagiarized physical piece of comedy.
1: Yes, well, from one of the greats, uh, Charlie Chaplin, so I'll do that. Uh, you know, um, yeah, it's funny because I have a very vivid memory of the first time I met you. Uh, you were becoming a very talked about a comedian, and you came on my uh late night show in New York's in New York and I had seen clips of you performing and I thought well he's very funny and he's very different and I went backstage just before you came out to say hello and you were pacing like a lion in a cage you were pacing and uh you know some comedians have almost a uh eerie detachment and you were you were worked up into a state and you were pacing and you came out and you perched on the furniture and you were so in the moment and it was hilarious. It was really funny and exciting, but I remember thinking this guy approaches this in this life or death way that uh, I find compelling and that I like, and I prefer this to the kind of casual guy puts out his cigarette, walks out there, does his thing, I don't know if you have if if that was the way you always were backstage, but I remembered that moment very clearly.
0: Even to live in the memory of a man like you is a, a great honor. I nearly I nearly wept at your recollection there, just to feel that uh, revivified. I I do remember that, and it was a real big deal to go on your show and to come over to like to be coming to your country and to sort of. I remember that feeling of burgeoning fame, that feeling of transcendence. What I didn't know then and do know now, but I'm sort of struggling to accept is that the kind of architecture and accolades of fame mimic something that is real a kind of self actualization a self realization a kind of connection like you with your story with your cane when you was a kid i felt very connected to comedy it's felt like something that's always been there for me always been real for me and has made being who i am something bearable and like something that you know it's been hard i've hell. you know, like amidst the narcissism and the self-aggrandizing shtick, I've been you know like had a lot of mental health issues and Mm -hmm. drug issues, which I've obviously banged on about and and metastasized into all sorts of frankly money. But like, uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's been lucrative. Russell,
1: Russell, Russell, all of us. I mean, first of all, you shouldn't feel bad about that. You have you have made your pain lucrative you have and and that is the essence of what we do <laughs> i've
0: had some very lucrative mental illnesses over yes. the years <laughs> i know happen.
1: i've men- i've mentioned this before russell but my father who is a very smart guy and a scientist uh i think a few years into my late night show uh and this is after years and years of me him seeing me work this stuff out uh, he said to me, and he wasn't making a joke. He just said, "I see, I see. You're making your living off of something that should probably be treated." <laughs> and he wasn't—he wasn't being funny. He was—I mean, people think, "Oh, your dad's funny." No, no, he mm. wasn't being funny. He was giving a very frank analysis mm. of of what this was. And I know that. Uh, <laughs> I know that for you, you've been through, like you've been very frank about all the things that you've you've been through, uh, which I think, uh, you know, you have a choice that you can make at some point, which is clearly there are people in our business that keep, they have these issues and they just keep throwing blankets and pillows on top of it, just trying to stifle it. And that's addiction, that's outlandish, insane behavior. Uh, or else you grapple with it and you try and see, does this lead to anything else? Uh, I, it's sad, but I, the mm-hmm. sentence I was gonna say, does this lead to more funny stuff? When I should have said, does this lead to peace and inner calm? But instead I was really about to say, hey, let's examine this pain because maybe there's more funny stuff there which is a sad thing to say.
0: Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? This pursuit of content, the pursuit of more material, more jokes. I I love it. And it can get a little bit frenetic and frenzied, the pursuit of that. But I feel that... You know that phrase, Buddha nature, like that everyone has a Buddha nature. Don't you sometimes when you meet people think, I wonder how they'd be as a priest or a rabbi or an imam or whatever the thing they're into is. I sometimes right. sense it about people that there's there's a version of them that if they were to strip back the appurtenances of their cultural identity would be radiate out and I think in that moment of pacing around backstage trying to find who I was as an inverted commas performer I got close to oh this is who you are essentially the challenge I think comes as a result of us living in a fully immersive fundamentalist ideological system that can never and it makes sense this be declared as such because it's horizonless you can never identify capitalist consumerism as a kind of uh, extreme extremist ideology in the same way that you would be able to identify communism or an extremist religious ideology because it's everywhere it's it's all encompassing everything you do becomes monetizable like and I, I, as a person that was really famous for a little bit it was weird to be caught in that tundra in that tunnel in that you know because and I still sometimes want it i still sometimes think wow oh. You should be a bit more famous, actually. You should be being in more films on some bigger posters and stuff. And then I remember it actually made me feel physically sick and ill the whole time. But, I don't, you know, I don't know what to do with these drives anymore, man.
1: Yeah, but that's that that is I mean, that's worth mining right now because, uh, you know, I don't don't think it's much different. It's probably no different in England, but I'll tell you, as you know, here in the United States, everybody's obsessed with the concept of fame. Everybody's, uh, I've met so many people over the years that have said, I want to do what you do, or I want to be famous. We've all had the feeling of, uh, um, should I need more of this? Should, uh, where am I in relationship to other people? And The one thing that I almost feel is like my duty as a human being (laughs) is to try and tell as many people as I can that uh, there's plenty of nice things about, uh, plenty of nice things about my life that I really like, but Mm -hmm. um, fame in and of itself is a clear uh, broth with absolutely no nutrition. There's not, there's no nutrition in it. There's no protein, there's no carbohydrates, there's no amino acids, there's nothing. And when people get addicted to that, there's a reason why a lot of them die (laughs) when they're 45, because it doesn't go anywhere. It's, it feels stupid. uh, And the, um, you know, there's small little nice things of, oh, I think I got a table in a restaurant faster than I would have were I not a recognizable uh, uh, Kabuki Irishman, but no, other than that, I think it's this, it's very, and it's very hard to get people to understand that. Uh, Mm. And and I've met so many people who've said, oh, I'm interested in doing what you're doing. And to me, that should mean that you're interested in making people laugh. You're interested in making stuff. You're making, you know, I say it's as simple as, I like to make stuff. And then there's this byproduct of making stuff and some of it's nice and some of it's not so nice, but when people get just obsessed with, no, 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 I just want everyone to know who I am. I think, well, there's a lot of pain that, <laughs> that goes with that drive and, and a lot of dissatisfaction and you can never fill that hole.
0: It's hardly um, surprising that so many people have it, given its ubiquity. And even um, your description of fame as a broth, I would query, I think it's completely, I I would say it's more like a synthetic saliva, a foaming synthetic saliva (laughs) (laughs) made outside (laughs) of the body. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, why can't we agree
1: that yes, mine is a nutritionless broth, Yours is a foaming saliva made outside the body. Why can't we say that it's a a saliva made outside the body consisting of a nutritionless broth? Why can't we agree? If why am I, I fighting with you? Why am I why is my ego now asserting itself <laughs> that I can't be wrong about the broth and that you have to give me some credence on the broth?
0: If Fuck you, you and I can't find some peace over this broth stroke synthetic saliva hydra that we're making right now with our minds, then what hope is there in the Middle East? What hope is there in fragmented America? What hope is there in post-Brexit Britain? What hope is there that this coronavirus will lead to some kind of global awakening where we recognize we're living in synthetic systems, much like that synthetic saliva, which could never be compared to a broth in my view.
1: (laughs) Damn you! Damn you, you won that round. All right, all right, I yield the floor. It is more from now on, I will tell people it's a synthetic <laughs> saliva made outside the body, and uh, clearly that's why you're drinking so much water during this interview is to create more of this synthetic saliva. I have a a a pot of of uh, flavorless broth brewing in the corner <laughs> which you can't see. but uh, the important thing is we've both found that and 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 here's the problem is that these these realizations, I'm thinking about anyone listening right now saying, yeah, duh, uh, we've all heard before that the real things are the smile of a child and, the, and an, an apple blossom on a nice day. And, you know, okay, okay. The thing is, those things are true. <laughs> and there are these moments of, of deep satisfaction. And, uh, and the problem is that when you try to enunciate that, when you try to clarify that, people its you run the risk of people saying, yeah, no, 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 I've heard that. I've seen that on posters. And mm. I think, I know, but it's wow. its a cliche because it's true. It's yeah, everything a seems
0: but- platitudinous, fatic, and empty. I've always felt that you seem like you... Ex- exist somewhat transcendent of that stuff in a place that uh, I think David Foster Wallace was interested in of, like, awareness of irony. So much of what you do is flavoured by irony, not like that broth you keep making. and <laughs> <clears throat> But also Good there broth. is a ge- genuine uh, uh sort of sincerity like your speech that you gave about cynicism and I'm interested in your uh, response to and recovery from that very public period where you your that stuff that happened around your NBC show and then yeah. that and then your tour afterwards what was what did that what did you learn from that experience and how did that help you reframe your relationship with what you do for a living and and who you are uh-
1: you know, it's funny because I—I I, it was—you uh, know—I uh, went through this very sort of public uh, feud with uh, my employers at the time at NBC, and I mean, I'm, I'm just summing up because I'm trying to remember that there's plenty of important things in the world, so I don't assume that everyone knows what we're talking about. But I went through this big feud and and uh, left this massive show here in the in you know in in America. That I had always thought was like if you have that show, that is the proof. That is that is the the brass ring, uh, that is the the key to having made it. And I think what it did for me was I went through obviously a lot of you know, depression and uh self-doubt and all these things. But then it ended up being kind of a crazy gift because I realized that. I had mistakenly thought that I existed uh, you know, in that framework of here's this big show. So if I have that big show, then uh, that's proof that I'm good and that I'm funny. And then I realized with the absence of that, I was forced to come up, realize that what I really like, what really drives me is making things. And so I made this tour and uh, with the help of a lot of other people and went out on the road and did this tour all across the United States. And it was really exhilarating and uh, exhausting. And I really, um, I think I kind of started to see, oh, I, I think I have some value aside from whatever show I'm hosting to put it Really simply, I think I have some value here, aside from and 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 since then, I think I've had more of a sense of ballast that um, yeah i'm I'm gonna make the stuff that I make, and uh, if I'm with this network or that network or with these people, with those people, uh, I'll be somewhere. i mean if if all of society collapses because of this pandemic and we're all living in the woods. Uh, I'll be somewhere in the woods, uh, not far from my family, close enough to to keep in touch with them every now and then, Mm. but I'll be somewhere in the woods uh, making some kind of skit, you know, for, uh, to entertain the the creatures that have sprung up in the wake of the pandemic, (laughs) you know? So, and I'll probably be getting the same amount of satisfaction making the radioactive uh, squirrels laugh that I got from whatever show, whether it was The Tonight Show or The Late Night Show or The Conan Show or the, the podcast, it, it, that it really comes from the making of the thing. So I, that was, uh, been, you know, I, I'm not saying I enjoyed that experience, uh, far from it, but I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't change my narrative in any way other than to uh, give myself a slightly different torso. <laughs> that's
0: about it it's clear that that you uh, like when you describe that conan it sounds like you're, there's a how I receive it and because this is how I experience reality is that there's a kind of a, an egoic self centered version of myself that is fueled by external stimulants approval accolades, and then there is something in me that is connected to essence. And what I find difficult is not putting this essential connection to comedy or to love or to service or whatever it is. Uh, Put it to work in order to get me more of the stimulant. You know, like it's it's very difficult not to be overwhelmed. I mean, in fact, I suppose that is the archetype of the journey into fame is you start off with some gift, you get a load of recognition, then you think it's about the recognition rather than the gift. And the gift, I think, is something that is very... uh, something that can be very beautiful and very pure. And in a sense, I suppose it is, um, there is an advantage that you were confronted so starkly and in a way publicly by the question, who am I, what's important to me? What are are my values?
1: Yeah, I think like I've noticed that uh, one of the things, if I could distill it down to uh, anyone who's listening, this is the the constant uh, struggle of, being in a world of, you know, uh, whether it's being called famous or semi-famous or quasi-famous, whatever you wanna call it, uh, is that you have this experience of, you walk down the street and someone recognizes you and you see their head turn and they recognize you and you get this slight ionic charge, like a tiny little coppery zing of that person saw me and knows me and seems impressed. Then you keep walking and another person passes you um, and you get the same little tiny zing and you feel like a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of warmth and and, uh, feeling of, yes, yes, I've just gained another little point, a little Pac-Man dot. I just got another one. But then you walk and someone passes you and doesn't recognize you. And you notice that they didn't recognize you. And then you start to wonder why that person didn't recognize you. And you lose two dots, you lose two zings. Maybe you even lose three zings. And suddenly you're in this war of constantly accounting. How am I doing? And it's taking up every fucking living second of your brain and that was, a little bit when I got immersed in all this, it was very much overnight in 1993 and I had just turned 30 and I wow. was, uh, overnight went from nobody knowing me to who is this guy and, and, and uh, you know, being photographed by famous, by Annie Leibovitz and just over, literally uh, one day in April, not that, the next day in April that in 19, 1993, that, And I started to become aware that I'm constantly hearing this feedback loop in my head of just, and I'm not actually, I can't turn it off. You can't, you can't, and and it's a complete waste of time. And so the more you, uh, it takes a long time to find your way through that. And I think what's, uh, and then to reestablish yourself as a person. But now I see this culture of people that what, Instagram, Facebook, and really the internet has done is distilled that down to its essence, which is how many clicks do I get? How many likes do I get? And so you have all these people that are, uh, I mean, they're doing surgeries to themselves, they're they're contorting themselves, they're showing them, they're photographing themselves naked, they're doing whatever they can to get more clicks, and they're kind of losing their minds, and it can all be done from their homes so people don't even see what they really look like. And the whole thing becomes this virtual, I don't know, sort of dystopian nightmare of people just trying to get more zings, more clicks, more whatever. And you know that that person's gonna, that person's gonna die and none of this means anything. All of this is going into the cloud and then the cloud's gonna drift away. It's, it's, it's completely worthless.
0: Yes, I wish a- I was an
1: inst I wish I was an Instagram model is what I'm saying. I wish I had huge fame on Instagram. I'm very- and I'm trying now to shit on it so that I uh I feel I have like an excuse for not being that. But I yes. would kill to be an incredibly cool influencer and uh to be going out with uh any, you know, uh any hadid, you know, uh if they were age appropriate.
0: Killing could be a good angle perhaps a, a spate of indiscriminate slayings yes yes photographs of those slayings yes it's people has, it's has not, there been
1: an instagram murderer yet not that's what yet be,
0: uh... conan not yet
1: not yet
0: and i said right then we've got ourselves a number one record in, um, <laughs> 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 we all remember this moment hey that's <laughs> <laughs> That zing index is a bit unfair isn't it the old exchange rate it's a bit untethered from any kind of federal reserve one zing for a like loss of two zings for someone strolling by it's a it's a very unfair system
1: Yes no it, it it is unfair it's completely insane but it all it all comes from self-loathing it all comes from self-hate or self criticism, uh, it's like the flip side to narcissism is uh, I fucking hate myself. And I, uh, and so um, that is, that is what it, look, we all know the feeling of it's a cliche, but you perform in front of 500 people and 499 are laughing and one isn't, you'll see the one that isn't. Uh, And then you will be backstage wondering what the fuck was wrong with that guy? And that is I think, uh where you get the well wait a minute, that's not fair. One out of uh one out of five hundred, uh so you got one negative zing for four hundred and ninety-nine positive zings, and you've given the one negative one much more power than it deserves, but that's all of us. All of us are you could get, you know. Uh, 10,000 great reviews online but this is why I don't go anywhere near this stuff. But uh, And then one person says, I don't know, I think he sucks and that's what you're going to be thinking about as you drift off to sleep.
0: I think what you're describing is zing hyperinflation which occurred in Germany after the Treaty of Versailles after yes. the Second yes. World War. So in a sense- this is we true. Can, we can blame the Allies, for, like a big wheelbarrow full of zings. And what'd you get? A loaf of bread. It's probably <laughs> yeah. not even that nice, certainly not sourdough. Yeah.
1: No, it's a well-known historic fact that after World War uh, I resolved uh, that uh, the Allies imposed too harsh a penalty uh, on, uh, on Germany and, uh, and, and it led to the collapse of their currency, the zings. And that <laughs> later, uh, that resentment of zing loss later on uh, and zing hyperinflation (laughs) led to World War II. So uh, this is all leading to another cataclysm if we're not careful.
0: One plucky little guy saw an opportunity there in that absence of zings and thought, I can really start corralling the zings if I can get my costume right.
1: Did you just describe (laughs) Adolf Hitler as a plucky little guy That's, that is, that is, I watch a lot of, I watch a lot of history documentaries. I read a lot about the Second World War. Never, ever have I heard anyone describe Adolf Hitler uh, arguably uh, in in the running with Stalin as one of the worst despots of any century as a plucky little guy.
0: (laughs) It's very easy to focus on the negative.
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> so let me get this straight then. Uh uh what would Stalin what would Stalin be? If Adolf Hitler is a plucky little guy, what is what is Stalin? Is uh is he uh, a kindly old man with a bit of a a little bit of a hitch in his step? What would you say?
0: I, I think he's an adorable old uncle. Uh, a a, a, a broom snouted living puddle.
1: I would love to hear your history, your history of the 20th century, uh, with <laughs> everyone described as uh, "Oh, you should have." Oh, Mao, a twinkling his <laughs> kind of twinkling his
0: eye, Mao, and uh, a sympathetic a... look at dictators. I would yes! like to make.
1: Yeah. No, but you're right. You're right. Hitler, if you think about it, if you really want to get he uh he capitalized on people's anger over negative zings uh and tried to hyperinflate positive zings. And um this analysis will end up I'll do I'll go to prison I think probably ultimately for this analysis.
0: Sooner or so, later. So. Yes. Some like I mean the sign wrap up was held aloft, I think somewhat in the response of of our um, repositioning of Adolf Hitler as a plucky little guy rather than, you know, one of history's great monsters. Well, what
1: we're just seeing is the other side of the coin. That's all. And I, I, I know that there'll be letters written uh, because I think it's 1925. That's I right. That letters, <laughs> I know that disapproving letters will be written and put in the post, I think, as you like to say, Russell.
0: Yes, yes, uh, that's, that's one of our idioms. They're all our yes. idioms.
1: <laughs> do you do you like to, do you like to take a lift? Do you get on the lift or you get on an elevator? What do you like to do?
0: I i do go to the, sure. do you... I get on the lift. Do you go to the
1: bathroom or do you go to the loo?
0: I go to the lavvy. I say, sir, I want to go to the lavvy or the water closet. If someone says, do you mean the bathroom? I roll my eyes and just pass a stool there and then in my trousers. <laughs> 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 don't be so horribly euphemistic. <laughs> now you're going to have to deal with a smear on your linoleum. <laughs> oh man! Oh man! I cannot ask Good you a serious question quickly. Here it is. Yes. It, even though we've seen that sign saying "wrap up," this is what it is.
1: Oh, don't pay attention to it. They have no power over us just because you saw on Zoom one of my producers roll his eyes past a stool and hold up a wrap it up sign doesn't that mean we have to wrap it uh, up
0: has his own microphone and several banjos And if we <laughs> can't respect the yeah, authority.
1: that's matt gorley matt, matt those are uh, yeah those are those are, that's his uh he has that authority or he thinks he has that power
0: but hey, I've been told. I've been uh, deputized. So this is just a suggestion. You guys do what you need to do. There was Good. a question mark actually. I didn't pay full attention to the grammar. It didn't. It didn't yeah. have an exclamation mark wrap up or ellipses right. wrap up into the limitless abyss of nothingness. It was exactly wrap, wrap, yeah. wrap up. This is
1: my least favorite part of the job. I hate doing this part, just so you know. So it's up up to you. Don't worry. We despise you as well. Uh, I know. I know. Please. I didn't mean that. That was just a a simple and crude jab. It's more of a distaste. Uh, Russell, what's your question?
0: Thank you. God, you're so authoritative, aren't you? Even when I'm doing the interrogating, it's you that facilitates the interrogating. Even though you may be the physical opposite of... Uh, that plucky little guy from the thirties and forties in terms of your nature, you are his twin. Now the, the question, (laughs) that's for sure.
1: (laughs) You get no argument from anybody in my camp.
0: (laughs) Um, so like, you've been the longest serving, and I don't mean to compare it to a prison sentence, late night talk show <laughs> yeah, in America. Why do you think there is such consistent visual grammar? Why do you think that the late night talk show is such a constant in American cultural life? What does it say? The desk, the cityscape, or even variations on it, such as your own f- full lunar revelation what does it mean why why is it like that why is that type of television so important what role does it play what is america being told about itself by those shows you know
1: it's interesting uh, i've thought about this a lot uh um the uh the late night talk show a lot of people don't know this but it came to life or it was uh it it sprung up out of um this network television came along and they realized, well, this is quite profitable. And then one person said, hey, at uh, 1130 at night, everything just goes dark. What if we just threw something on there and it didn't cost that much to make, we might make some money off of it. And so literally it's the, the analogy is that it was people living in a house and they, one day realize we've got a huge attic (laughs) that we could just do whatever we want with. There's no pressure. Uh, And who cares if it works or it doesn't. And that's where you get uh, Steve Allen starts to mess around with it. And he's an inventive guy. And you you look at those old tapes and they're literally just killing time. (laughs) They're literally, I mean, they're doing some very inventive things and some very funny things, but especially in the early episodes in the 1954, 55, 56, there's there's 10 minutes can go by where they're just sort of discussing, oh, I found this today in a shop and look at this, you wind it up and isn't that interesting? Look at that, it just sort of goes, isn't that cool? Yeah, I found that in a shop and uh, Chesterfield cigarettes, by the way, that's a good cigarette. It's got a cool menthol flavored, you know, and that's what they would do. And then there'd be some comedy, but, a lot of time killing and those shows went on for two hours. Sometimes they just went on forever. And then through the years it got refined and refined. And what happened is the space in the attic became insanely lucrative. And so that just led to, I mean, Johnny Carson was on for 30 years. And if you think Jack Parr and Steve Allen are on for, uh, between them 10 years before that, uh, there's, there's 40 years and then uh, these other hosts come along. There's, there's Letterman, who's doing the sort of anti-talk show. But even to do the anti-talk show, you need the same visual reference points. Which is, it's, it's something that was so anarchic about what David Letterman did, is it looked kind of like Carson, but it was demented. You know, there was a desk, and there was a band, but it was all slightly off. And he was slightly off. He wasn't worrying that this. He was wearing a suit, a suit jacket and a tie, but he was also wearing tennis sneakers with it. And the whole thing had a weird feel to it. And it was on even later than most talk shows. It was on at 1230. And so that's when people of my generation who had grown up with Carson, we saw Letterman. But I think it's almost uh, this idea that I actually kind of believe in myself when I was doing, my sh- uh, doing the late night show is I always wanted the, uh, the symbols of normalcy to be there. I wanted, um, uh, I wanted the desk to be there and the sidekick and for it to sort of appear normal. And that would make the strangeness even much more strange. Do you know what I mean? Uh, it needed, I needed the straight line in order to then depart from it. Uh, and that's why I think even to this day, I mean, we're doing, I'm doing shows during the pandemic I just wear a t-shirt for most of it, but I see other hosts are still putting on a tie and I don't fault them for it because I can see that they're, I, I've just been doing it for so long, maybe, I don't know. I've, I, I, I just can't put a tie on anymore when I'm at home, but I can see that they still want that same touchstone, that same visual reference point. Uh, and I think I can kind of see the purpose of it. Does that make sense, what I just babbled?
0: Yeah, it's weird though, isn't it? Because it's the emergence of like, I understand it was economically driven, as, as you know, to, to my earlier point, most things are economically driven and economically sustained. And if they can't operate under those terms, it doesn't matter how good they are, or if they're good, the metric by which good is established is an economic one i can see that that's its point of origin and that but it's it's peculiar to me and that's probably this could apply to any emergent form that the the, the consistency of there is the desk there are the chairs there is the cityscape it, you know most right. regular most usually it's a male like like it's like it, yep. It's, yep. it's sort of a significant uh like i would say sort of beam in the architecture of your country, you know, if you were showing a montage of America, along with the aforementioned McDonald's arches and Elvis Presley and Hendrix or whatever, like you would, at some point, you would demonstrate these figures that come out that do the monologue in front of the curtain. Like it's sort yep. of like, it's, a, yep. it's s- saying something about America, and I wonder what it is, and I i wonder like that there can be like you said, like yourself or Letterman, there can be pretty challenging and definitely very very funny uh comment and content on there, but it's still somehow it's an establishment form. It's an yep. and, and, yeah. and not least because you say like it's the whole thing is held together by you know m- marketing, and that's not something that's not a yeah, but criticism. it's
1: changing. It's changing a lot. I mean, it's changed a lot in the last. Uh... It used to be that there were two or three, I mean, there used to be one show years and years and years ago, then there were two, then there were three, and then it just exploded. And because of cable and because of streaming and because of just the ubiquity of ways of entertaining people, there's now so many shows uh, that it's, I think it's going through a huge transformation. Like I think, they used to be strictly comedic uh, or they were thought of as entertainment. And, and now I think more and more of them are about, there's more and more punditry in late night TV than there used to be. And people saying, they get angry and they say, hey, uh, I don't really like what the president said today. And there's, sometimes you watch it and you think like, this is drifting from comedy to just opinion and anger. Uh, and some people really like that, and, uh, but it's just morphed. You wouldn't see that uh, uh, I don't think you'd see that 15, 20 years ago. You might f- see tones of it, but would all be couched in comedy as there are times where I can watch someone on late night and then I can watch MSNBC and there doesn't seem to be that much of a difference. You know, They're both angry about what the president did today. And uh, so I think it's morphing a lot. I think it's changing. But then there are other shows that are completely just silly so there's room, there's room for, once you have a hundred talk shows, there's room for just a lot more uh, forms of them. I just don't know that they have, I don't think we'll have again, what, what we in, the, in America had in the 1970s and 80s, which is one person put us to bed at night, which sounds creepy. Man, <laughs> an, older, an older man would put us, us to bed, uh, but it was one guy and he was the most famous person in America. Uh, You know, he was arguably more famous than the president at at any given time, Johnny Carson. And then uh, I don't think we'll ever see that again, because there's currently, I think, 900 talk shows in America. And, um, you know, so no one person has that power.
0: 900 of them. And I still couldn't make one work, Conan, in spite of your willingness to attend a production meeting and give me a a, a helping hand, which I will always remember and appreciate it seems to me that your reco- your key devotion then is to the comedy that you i don't i notice that you're careful not to be critical of people that use it for, as a place for punditry but that's is that, that's not what interests you and i don't i don't get the sense that that is because you want to maintain some ambiguity as not to deter audience no no no
1: i just i i have uh, i have i i bow to the god of comedy uh mm. and that's the cross i'll die on uh, he said mixing metaphors, uh, but I, I I, very much, to me it's, is this funny? And uh, is it silly? And does it, uh, my favorite things I think would be funny to an adult and to a child. And uh, those are my favorite kinds of comedy. Even going back to when I was a kid and I uh, did a, a, a cheap sight gag by knocking a cane out of the way and falling down. Uh, accidentally, uh, I I think I was always drawn to silliness. I I love Pink Panther, uh, Peter Sellers. There's just a commitment to it's laughing at pomposity and a silly man. Uh, and that's that's always the way that I'm going to go, and um, that's that's the thing that gets me up in the morning and keeps me in this business uh, as the I always think when people say oh you're the longest you know serving talk show host it always sounds like you've stayed at the party too long (laughs) i don't think anyone should get credit for you've stayed at this party longer than anyone conan
0: congratulations
1: yeah exactly i'm drunk and i don't want to drive home
0: (laughs) yeah i like that it seems to me that you've got an appetite for the the universal and the thing that in common like i think a lot about some of the great comics that I uh, adore and admire. Say, for example, yeah, you know, like Sellers or the British comedian Tommy Cooper. But there's, you know, countless comedians. Is I feel like there's a sort of a sense, and I think you have this actually, uh, of alluding to a secondary ever present frequency that we're all aware is constantly there that we're all playing our roles in like hello i'm me this is important i've got to get this done and at any moment you can peek behind the veil and go this is ridiculous none of this matters it's all we're we're all dying it's all falling apart there's something sort of very beautiful about that i think
1: well it's just just uh like i say it's my my um silliness i think I think silliness gets dismissed a lot as as just that, being silly. Oh, that's just silly, it's not important. And I think, well, there's nothing more important than silliness. And some of my favorite kinds of comedy, uh, I was just showing my kids this the other day because I absolutely loved it, but it's from one of, it's maybe the fourth Pink Panther film. Peter Sellers is, <laughs> is Inspector Clouseau and he comes in and he's upstairs in this mansion. He's told, the butler assemble everybody because I want to question them. I want to question everybody in the uh, about the murder. So they're all assembling downstairs and he's upstairs walking around and then he sees these parallel bars and anyone can look this up. It's just a great, great piece of just comedy with a capital C and he gets on the parallel bars and he's wearing his full trench coat or I think in his hat and he's, he's saying, ah, yes, I was, this, I was quite the, master of the parallel bars. And he's, <laughs> he's doing all this kind of pompous back and forth. And then he goes for the dismount. And you haven't noticed this, but there's a stairway there that goes downstairs. And he does a dismount and just falls out of frame. And then you cut to the room where all the people are assembled and he tumbles into frame. <laughs> and it's hilarious. And then he stands up and refuses to acknowledge that he just fell down a full flight of stairs and immediately launches into this kind of aggressive, uh, assholic questioning of this. Of the and I think like okay, if anyone asks me what I'm about, it's that. I just love that. That mm-hmm. whatever Peter Sellers did right there, that it doesn't get better than that. So I don't mm-hmm. know. That's my.
0: Thanks, that's man. my thing. Thank you. It's very beautiful. I was thinking that, like, how do you write that? You know, how do you write that? It's like look, with language and words, you're spotting patterns. You just keep talking, something yep. will come in the yep. end. But how do you have the sort of perspective of, right, we'll set up parallel bars. Unseen in the frame will be that it's going to fall. Just try- yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, <laughs> uh, it's just pomposity immediately revealed. But then uh, he refuses to acknowledge it and goes right to, you madam. You know <laughs> I mean anyone else in their right mind would leave the room humiliated but no. Clouseau goes on the on the attack immediately. Uh So yeah. yeah. Thanks. i have loved yeah, you know, I uh, we should probably, you know. Be did friends. you get everything? Do you Yes, that would be really nice. Actually, I know we live I'm going to calculate 6000 miles apart.
0: Yes. But the human heart is a powerful organ. As is the human genital.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, then, uh, yeah, love does conquer all. Uh, so we will we'll be friends. Are you you
0: have... more of, I'm a bit more fretful in real life.
1: No, yeah, I know, but you'll be fine. All we'll right. be friends. We'll be friends. And I'll say this... Uh, I think one of the reasons, because uh, I have the visual of you right here in my face uh, on screen, and it's been very calming to talk to a uh, circa 1977 George Harrison. You're, you've really mm-hmm. looked exactly like him at this Thanks. face right now, and I found like, and he was the most I think centered uh, uh, and spiritual of, of the Beatles. And I've, I, I, I keep thinking every now and then because the visual is so convincing that. Yes, yes. Oh, George Harrison, you. circa 1977, it wants to be my friend.
0: I I live just around the corner from Friar Park, where George Harrison spent the later part of his life and where he died. Actually, I'm friends with Danny, his son, and um, you know uh, I, I I love George a lot. He like when you, he sort of it's like he got bored of fame at about 20. <laughs> like he was yeah. about 20 years old. He thought, oh, this is bullshit. I get it. Yeah, I, I love George Harrison. I think he was I know that. Yeah. I,
1: I I've uh I know Danny a bit and I uh he's always been lovely to me and he gave me a tour of that house. Oh wow, uh, it's an amazing place, huh? So I've been uh I've been over there and that's a lovely uh lovely part of England. Just gorgeous. Uh and I had a very funny experience, just we'll wrap up on this, and uh, which is I may have mentioned this once before on the podcast, but it's too perfect. There's a place, I was in London about seven years ago and someone booked me a reservation at a place called Chilton Firehouse. Mm. And I didn't know anything, but apparently that's where people go to get their picture taken. (laughs) And so I'm at Chilton Firehouse meeting, I think an executive at Turner who had booked the reservation. And we have our dinner and I walk out, and there's about uh, 70 paparazzi there, you know, sort of London paparazzi. And one of them took a picture of me. So suddenly, all the lenses came up, and 75 lenses uh, of you know flash bulbs started flashing, 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 flashing. You know, like that footage you see of Princess Diana. You know, not long before she died, just anywhere she went, just flash, 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 flash. flash. And I had that split second of being a famous person in London and then started to turn to walk up towards, to find a cab up the street and all the flashes stopped. And I realized, uh, and and one guy in the crowd in a thick accent said, hey, who the fuck are you? (laughs) 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 And I realized in that second that one guy out of seventy-five said he looks like someone. Uh, I, I, you know, he he looks like some Belgian actress. So one guy fired off his camera, which caused all the other mouse traps to fire off, and then they all were like, <laughs> "These guys didn't know. I mean, they might know more now because of the whatever the, but they still wouldn't care." And 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 this one guy shouted, "Who the fuck are you?" And I just thought I'd make a joke. So I said, I am a male model uh, from Berlin. And they were like, ah, fuck off. And it was just this great, that is a great encapsulation of the sudden rush of, wow, look at me, all these flash bulbs going off. I'm George Michael in London circa 1987 and then immediately who the fuck are you <laughs> and then walking up the street in the dark to find a cab that's the essence of the broth not saliva
0: <laughs> don't you dare don't you dare try to go out on that insipid broth
1: no nope. i win again i always win
0: that's brilliant in well, my own, timing in and... my own
1: mind all right well uh listen this was i think we got it this is great are you are you happy on your end Will this, does this work for you
0: I surpassed happy some hours ago, and I'm now in a sort of I'm almost just pure ether.
1: You were uh, clean shaven when this interview began. <laughs> <you
0: know? laughs> that was
1: great. That was the most. Uh, I was a little anxious because I thought um, it's earlier here, and I thought no, my brain isn't firing. So I was drinking a lot of coffee, and my wife said, "What's what's wrong?" And I said, "It's Russell. It's Russell Brand." I. You can't phone this in with Russell Brand. You gotta like your mind is is yeah. Uh, I can't. I would have been ashamed of myself. So I oh. just had like nine cups of coffee and was like, "Slap me! Let's go! I've got to go into the I've got to go into the lion's den with Russell, who's going to oh. question my very existence." That was wow. great, though.
0: Yeah, I think your existence is almost entirely justified.
1: <laughs> <laughs> eighty eighty five percent there.
0: All right. <laughs> we'll get thank
1: there. you russell seriously it's uh you're one of my favorite people to talk to so um, thank you, and and a singular person so let's uh let's keep this going in our own thank crazy you. way
0: thanks conan thanks very much mate i appreciate it take care everyone did you enjoy that is that the sort of thing that makes you happy i enjoyed it, it was lovely to do something so uh loose and comedic and to deal with Conan's powerful drives. I liked the phrase Conan Celtic Kabuki. That was good, wasn't it, when that got said by him because I couldn't remember the name Kabuki. It's one of those words I've never really memorised. Childhood, feeling good at something. Oh, wasn't that a sweet moment? First time we met. Oh, that was lovely when he described that. Listen, if you want to hear more Luminary stuff or more episodes of Under the Skin, do. Luminarypodcast.com. Go over there now. Get some stuff down here. Get some good podcasts. Get some of the real gear. You can't just settle for this low-level cut stuff. You've got to get the high-grade. Yeah, Luminary Podcasts. I don't know. I've been alone a long time now. Luminary. Luminarypodcasts.com.